following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please grab them and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can use one of our hardback black Bibles that are under every single chair. Uh, 1 Samuel 14 is on page 235 in those Bibles. Hey, to our online friends, uh, if you want to click that Bible tab, 1 Samuel 14 is, is where we're going to be. Phones or tablets, just open up a Bible, okay? I want you uh, to be able to see this uh, in the text this morning. Uh, this, as you're turning there, this is uh, the one. This story, the passage today, this is the story. This is the passage uh, that, that uh, is, this is the reason, this one story is the reason why I wanted to preach through 1 Samuel. That's, I just want you to know, this is, for me, this is the passage, all right? Today's passage is my favorite story in the entire book of 1 Samuel. I like this better than the calling of Samuel, which is a great story, right? Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's a great story. I like this one better. Okay, this one's better than the, the lost donkey narrative from a number of weeks ago. You remember that? that? That's a weird story. Great one. I like this one better. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I like this story better than David and Goliath. Just teeing it up, all right? That's what I'm saying. Like, this is the story for me. Now, uh, many of you know that I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't go to church as a kid. Uh, I got saved when I was 16. So when I got saved, I knew some Bible stories, but I didn't know them all. And the ones that I knew were really the only, only the real popular ones or the ones that had been made into really bad movies. You following me? Okay. Those are the stories that I knew. And so I got saved at 16. I felt called into ministry at 18 and I got my first church job at 19, which is a bad play all around for that church to give a 19 year old a job, but they did. Okay. And I went to my very first ministry conference when I was 19, went to a conference, a uh, ministry church conference. Uh, and at that conference, I heard a pastor by the name of Erwin McManus preach on this passage on 1 Samuel 14. He started by, by saying this. He got up and he said, hey, would you open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14? And I didn't know where it was. I mean, I was still really new at this thing. I didn't know where to find 1 Samuel 14. So at the pastor's conference, I had to open up my Bible to the table of contents. And you never feel like a bigger idiot than opening your Bible to the table of contents at a pastor's conference. Ain't nobody doing it there, but I did that. And that's why if you use the table of contents here at Fathom and somebody gives you a dirty look, all right, you let me know and we'll help them find a new church, all right? <laughs> we are a table of contents kosher zone, all right? It's good for you, okay? Uh, so, so I turned to 1 Samuel 14. I'm at this pastor's conference and Irwin went on to preach a message on our text for today that literally changed my life. It, it literally shaped my view of Christianity, my view of ministry. It still impacts me today. This is the reason why I wanted to preach this book. And you know how we do. So it took me 20 weeks to get through the first 13 chapters just so I could get to this one passage. Uh, and have you ever noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it, sometimes in life you, you hear sermons that are just kind of, just meh, right? They're just kind of like, ah, that was kind of in one ear, out the other 
And then there are sermons that are maybe a little bit more steady. Like they're just kind of steady sermons. They're good sermons, but they, and they help you kind of in life, but they don't, they don't just blow you away. They're just kind of steady sermons. And then there are some sermons that you listen to and man, they just break you. They just break you apart and something in you cries out and you change because of them. And I'm not going to ask you where my sermons fit in that continuum for you. All right. I don't need that kind of discouragement in my life. But, but, but Irwin's sermon broke something in me and it literally changed the course of my life, the course of my ministry. I still remember it today. Uh, He actually expanded it into a book. Some of that I'll reference in this sermon. Uh, So I'm excited. I'm seeing this up, like I'm setting it up. You excited for this? Yeah? Not, not, Not excited enough. All right. Here we go. I need to tell you where we are. Right, 1 Samuel 14 is where we're going to be. But uh, at the end of 1 Samuel 13, there was some setup for today's passage. Here's where we're at. Saul is the first king of Israel. He is the first king of Israel. He has raised up an army of 3,000 men. Okay, first army that Israel has ever had. His son, Jonathan, took a third of them, took 1,000 of that 3,000, and he went and defeated a garrison, a garrison of the Philistines. The Philistines are the arch nemesis of God's people. Okay, uh, and so the Philistines get a bit riled up. They pull out their big guns. Uh, they call 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And uh, it, the, the text says that there were troops as numerous as sand on the seashore. So they, they, they get a little ticked and they go all in. They pull out all the big guns and they muster at a place called Michmash, uh, which is a real place apparently, uh, against Israel. So they are showing up with all their weapons. And Saul and the rest of the Israelites see this and freak out. That's what we found out. They freak out, they get scared, and they start hiding away in caves and cisterns and all this stuff. Um, and, and then at the end of, end of chapter 13, I want to point out a couple of verses. Uh, in, in 1 Samuel 13, 19 and verse 22, I'll put these up on the screen. This is what we, we find out. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. And then verse 22, so on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So this is setting up our text today. The day of the battle, here's what has happened. A brilliant strategy by the Philistines, okay? The Philistines, at some point earlier, in kind of uh, preparation for uh, Israel rising up against them, they had killed all the blacksmiths in Israel. And the text actually says that that there's no swords, there's no spears, except for Jonathan and Saul. They each have a sword. Um, And and the text even reads, we didn't read this, but they would have to bring their farm equipment, the Israelites would have to bring their farm equipment down to the Philistines to get those things sharpened. This is brilliant strategy. Kill the people who make the weapons and the army's not gonna do well. So I know we've got some Lockheed people in here. You're next, all right? I'm just throwing that out there. Like, if you're in the defense industry, we'll take you out. The war's over. That's just, uh, I mean, that's something to learn. But there's two swords. Saul's got one. Jonathan's got one, okay? Nepotism at its finest. That's what we're seeing here. And, and all of this is setting up, chapter 14, to be an impossible situation. 
All of this is setting up an impossible situation for God's people. Saul and his army have two swords up against the entire army of the Philistines, tens of thousands of chariots and troops and horsemen. It's setting up an impossible situation. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 1. So uh, open up your text. Here we go. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichapod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senek. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Okay, those five verses, they set up the passage for today. And here's what we have seen, okay? We open on Jonathan, the son of the king, the prince. And he goes to his young man, this armor bearer, who is given no name in this story. He will be known forevermore as the armor bearer. Um, But he goes to him and he says, let's go over to the Philistines. Let's go over to the Philistines. Now, you need to note right off the bat that he did not tell his father. The text made that clear. Saul does not know what's going on. Commentators argue a little bit as to why that detail was put in the text. Like, why would he not tell his father and why would we need to know that? I think it's likely that Jonathan didn't tell his dad because Saul would likely have forbidden this move. Saul was not a character king known for his boldness and bravery, okay? He liked to hide in caves and in the luggage. And I mean, he's just kind of done this throughout his tenure as king. And you ever think uh, before you make a move, this would be actually a lot easier to ask forgiveness for rather than permission for? That's what's going on here. That's actually pretty much most of my life. Just ask for forgiveness. We'll see how it goes, right? Like that's, that's what's happening here with Jonathan. The second thing to note in this part is that the text says that Saul is in the pomegranate cave. He's hanging out in the cave with his 600, it says, 600 men. Now, remember, the the army was 3,000 when he started. There's been one skirmish with Jonathan and 1,000 of them taking on the garrison of the Philistines, and so they likely have some losses from that. But this is just pointing out how diminished Saul's force has become due to the fear that the Philistines are proposing on God's people. They've now lost a huge percentage of their army. This is even more impossible than it would have been if they had all 3,000. No, there's only 600 left. Actually, there's only 598 left because Jonathan and his buddy are gone too, okay? So there's 598 in the pomegranate cave. And then finally, in this setup, the, the text tells us that there are two rocky crags and they pass 
by which uh, Jonathan is wanting to go and see the Philistines with his armor bearer. And those two rocky crags are called Bozes and Senech, which roughly translate to slippery and thorny. That's what those words mean. I tell you all of this information because the writer wants you to know this is an ominous setup. This is a setup for an impossible situation. That's what's going on here. And I want to stop here and make a a point. The first point this morning that I'd like to make about how we as God's people ought to face impossible or seemingly impossible situations is to do what Jonathan does and this idea of let's go. The first thing that we should do when we see an impossible situation is something. Let's go. Let's do something. Because the two models that we're getting here, Saul on one hand, Jonathan on the other hand, is that Saul is in the caves with the army doing absolutely nothing. And I imagine Jonathan wakes up his armor bearer to say, let's go check out this Philistine encampment. And I imagine when he says that, the the armor bearer's like, well, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do when we get there? And, and I just have to imagine Jonathan's just like, let's just do something. I can't just sit around and do nothing. I've got to do something. And this goes back to what we talked about a number of weeks ago about fear. Because when you live in this mentality of fear rather than a mentality of faith, man, fear paralyzes you. Fear causes you to seize up and do nothing. And that's what Saul and 597 others are doing. They're doing nothing. They're sitting in their cave, the pomegranate cave, with their pomegranate smoothies and little umbrellas in there just hanging out, just doing nothing. How many of us are at a place like that in our faith? Right? Maybe at one point you were passionate about Jesus. You had fervor, had a little bit of fire in your bones about following Christ. But man, over time, as you follow Jesus longer, it's real tempting to kind of enter into the proverbial cave, to kind of cave up in your safe little kind of Christian bubble with your little drink and umbrella, and you're just kind of doing the Christian thing. Maybe it's for fear of being rejected for your faith. Maybe it's for fear of being judged by others for your faith. Maybe you're just afraid of making people uncomfortable around you but you just caved up, kind of pulled a Saul move. But listen, when we jump into that cave mentality, when we kind of hide away and do nothing, we are at risk of losing our future. You end up at risk of losing your future because of your fear. All right, and it's interesting that you can have two different people in the exact same position with two completely different outcomes. That's what we have here, right? Saul and Jonathan, one's the king, one's the priest. Both are experiencing unbelievably skewed odds against them, and they each only have one sword. The exact same position, and listen, you can either live a life of risk or you can live a life of regret. So Saul stays in the cave, and he will lose his future over his fear. But Jonathan's response to the ominous army of the Philistines is, let's go. Let's go. 
And he's going to step into a battle that was his father's battle because his father didn't have the courage to step into it himself. Now is where it gets interesting. Let's look at verse 6. So Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now think for, with me for just a moment. That's his speech. That's Jonathan's speech to his armor bearer to convince him to go over to the Philistines. Think about it from the perspective of the armor bearer. Jonathan starts with, hey, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And you're probably, if you're the armor bearer, thinking, yes, what confidence. I'm in this military not to sit in a cave. I'm ready to go. This guy has a plan. This guy is a leader. This guy certainly knows something that I don't know. This is inspiring me. I've been waiting to follow a leader like this. And then Jonathan's next statement is, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Well, that's not as inspiring. You're telling me your plan is maybe? It may be? You're banking all of this, our lives, on a maybe? Is that what you're telling me? And this is the second point. This is the second point of these impossible situations. So you've got to recognize the truth that maybe God will help. Let's go. Maybe God will help. And that implies that maybe he won't. Maybe he'll help, but maybe he won't. And we've got we to gotta talk for a second here. Because somewhere along the line, we've come to believe that if you have faith in God, it's going to eliminate uncertainty in your life. But that's simply not true. That's simply not true. See, the reality is that faith never eliminates uncertainty in your life. Anything else is just bravado. Anything else is just made up. It never eliminates uncertainty. Faith actually accentuates some of the uncertainty in your life. It calls you to step into that uncertainty with faith. It's completely opposite. If you live a life of faith, you move away from certainty. And you move into the uncertainty with, with faith. And I think if we're honest, we actually want God to make life a little bit more predictable. Just make it easier. Just make it safer. Just make it more comfortable for me. God, this is like, I'm giving my life to you. You just got to meet your end of the bargain and make things a little bit better for me. But listen, that's staying in the cave. That's sipping on your drink with Saul. That's, that's not moving with Jonathan. Let's go. See, I think somewhere along the line, we've bought into the idea and mistaken the word faith with safe. And we think that those are synonymous. Faith equals safe, but in reality, faith is actually a little bit more synonymous with the idea of danger. Faith doesn't bring you into safe places. Faith actually moves you into dangerous places very often. And I love that Jonathan here, when he says, maybe, maybe God will do something. I love that he's not boasting in some self-confidence, like some self-mustered confidence. Like there's, 
In this scenario, there is zero reason for confidence. There's no reason for certainty in this moment. This isn't Jonathan putting on a facade of assurance. Of course, this is what God's calling us to. He will always deliver his people, except for when he doesn't. See, Jonathan isn't a man of certainty. He's a man of faith. And those are different things. And while there's no reason at all for certainty in this moment, there most definitely is reason for faith. We see this in his final words of his speech when he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. See, Jonathan's faith wasn't in his circumstances. His faith wasn't in his situation. His faith wasn't in that one sword. His faith was in his God. It's the object of his faith, the person that he's putting his faith in who's powerful. Not him, not his situation, not these two little dudes with one sword between the two of them. He knew there was no chance in the situation but maybe with God, maybe. So he goes on, verse seven, I love this. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. And I'll tell you this much, you need these kinds of people in your life. I mean, did you just hear what he said? Maybe, And this guy's like, do everything you want. Do all that he is committed to him in a way that's, I mean, you want to face an impossible situation, you better have people on your flanks who say, hey, do whatever's in your heart. We're with you. Hasn't even heard the plan. Wait till you hear the plan, all right? He may not be saying that in a couple more verses, but, but that's who he's got on his side. Okay, verse eight. Then Jonathan said, here's the plan, okay? Behold, We will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. Now, this is the worst militaristic strategy in the history of the world. Josh, where are you? Are you in here still? Nope, he's not. He went to West Point. He told me, this is not what they teach you. This is not how our American military works, all right? This is terrible strategy. Remember, let's, let's just work through this, okay? There's a pass that they're going through with slippery and thorny crags on both sides, all right? Um, and, and remember, the Philistines are at the top of this pass, and Jonathan and his armor bearer have one sword against thousands, tens of thousands of Philistines, and the only hope that they would have to have any sort of impact in a battle would be to have the hope of surprise, right? We'll just get up there real quiet in the dark, pull out our sword and start slitting throats, right? Like that's what they, that's the only chance they've got to make any dent on the Philistine army, a covert operation. But what does Jonathan start with? We'll go and show ourselves to them. That's what he said. He doesn't go covert. We're going to make ourselves known to the enemy. He goes overt, straight up two dudes in a valley with crags on both sides. And that's his plan. 
Then he says this, if they see us, which they're going to see you, all right? You've just made yourself known to them. If they see us and they say, hey, we'll come down to you, essentially leaving the high ground, the position of strength. If they say, we'll come down to you, then we're dead meat. But, but if they say, why don't you come up to us? Why don't you climb these slippery and thorny crags? Why don't you come up to us? Keeping the position of strength, keeping the high ground. You guys come up to us. Then we'll know it's from the Lord and he's handed them over to us. Why would you do this? I don't understand this. Why? This makes no sense. Why would you make the defining factor on the sign from God on whether or not you should go as, as simple as possible? Why would, why would the sign be, are they willing to give up the high ground or not? If not, then they've been given into our hands. This doesn't make any sense. Why would you go overt instead of covert? Why would you let the Philistines even see you in this? It's point three. You want to go? You want to see God help? Maybe. You got to show yourself. You got to show yourself. Hear me on this. So many Christians have gone covert with their faith. Gosh, so many of us want to, we want to do something for God, but we just don't want to let the Philistines see us. You want to keep things private. You don't want people around you to feel bothered by you, your Christianity. You haven't shown yourself as a follower of Christ. Essentially, you're just hanging out in the cave with Saul rather than being seen with Jonathan. But a part of faith is being seen. Show yourself. It's rejecting the temptation of invisibility. It's showing yourself. Some of us have been hiding in some caves and, and you're wondering why God hasn't shown up in your life. But if you want to see God work at your life, like you've got to show yourself. What's that song? Hide it under a bushel? No! Right? Verse 11. I love that the armor bearer doesn't say anything else after the plan. Just if you note that, okay. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given the, uh, I'm sorry, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Like, I just love this moment. They show themselves, the Philistines say, come up to us. And that's all Jonathan needs. He's like, woo, it's ours. Come on, follow me. That's like a brave heart moment, right? He reads this situation as a sign that God is with them. But now it means that they're going to have to put themselves into considerable risk. All right? I mean, and that seems a bit contradictory to our sensibilities. At least to me, it does. Like normally when I think, man, God opened that door wide for me. I don't tend to equate that with a lot of risks. Right? I mean, but it would seem that Jonathan doesn't see that. 
And I just think it's something to note here. An open door to God's will doesn't always mean smooth sailing. It doesn't always mean smooth sailing. And this is where a lot of Christians can get in trouble because, see, we often determine whether we are in God's will or not based on how good we feel or not. Based on how comfortable we are or not. Based on the elusive idea that I had a peace about it. Oh, I have a peace about this. Oh, I don't have a peace about that. And that peace tends to feel have more to do with our feelings necessarily than it does with God's will. When we see there's no perceivable roadblocks, that's obviously the way that God wants us to go. But when we see roadblocks, that's red flags. I don't think that's where God would, would want me to go. But that's cave mentality, y'all. That's living in the cave. That's pomegranate drink in hand sort of thinking. In my life, every big thing that I've been a part of for the Lord hasn't come easy to me. And the things that have come easy, they weren't big things. They were normal things. You want to live normal life? Do normal things. But if you want to see big things from the Lord in your life and in the lives of those around you, you have to step out into some faith-driven life. It comes with sweat and tears and hard work and perseverance. So listen, you might sense that God is calling you to do something, sense that God is opening a door before you, but there are hard things that come in that path as well. And I just want to say, don't give up if you sense his call. Don't run back into the caves as we're so prone to do. Stay, persevere, let's go. That's what Jonathan is modeling. Let's see what happens. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. Uh, they killed 20, about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. So that's just, they killed 20 in some furrow length. I don't know what that means. This is what you pay me the big bucks for. <laughs> and there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Okay. So they climb up the slippery and thorny crag, and the text says, with their hands and feet. Why is this detail here? I mean, how else are you going to climb with your lips? Like, I don't know what, what, what's going on. I, mean, I don't know what this is. But again, I think these little details are put in for a purpose. And I think this detail is here because if their hands and feet are occupied with climbing, what aren't they holding? Their weapon. No sword, no shield. Their hands and feet trusting in God completely that they would sheathe the sword sling the, the, the armor over their shoulder and climb. And the Philistines obviously don't see that there's any threat here because they got to the top, pull their weapons, and kill 20. Slay 20 in a furlough of an acre or whatever. And now they're in trouble, all right? So maybe they weren't surprised, but they were surprised after they killed 20 
all right? And now these guys are in trouble because 30,000 ain't just gonna lay down to two dudes. But this is where God shows up. This is where God shows up. Uh, It says that a panic hit the camp. And in Hebrew, you can read that literally as a trembling by God arose. There's this trembling panic that's not caused by Jonathan's attack, but rather it's caused by God. They saw Jonathan. They might have even been caught off guard for those first 20, but then the hand of the Lord shows up. It causes tremendous panic and trembling, and it says the very earth began to quake and shake beneath them. This is a supernatural moment where God flexes and the Philistines freak out. See, this is an impossible situation. This is an impossible situation, but maybe God will help. And when God helps, it's no longer impossible. But just know, you'll never never see God's possible until you step into the impossible. They never would have seen it. They never would have experienced it if they hadn't taken that first step of faith, if they hadn't sheathed the sword and crawled up that thorny and craggy wall, they never would have done it without faith. Now, I'm gonna skip verses 16 to 19 here because what happens is that Saul and the other 597, they hear the commotion, okay? They hear the commotion in the camp and they do a quick little head count and they're like, who's not here? And they do a quick little, who's here? Who's here? I'm here, I'm here. And they find out that Jonathan and his armor bearer aren't there. And they're the only ones who are missing from the group. And it causes them now to jump into action. So look at verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword who had been, uh, was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now, The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. My final point for this impossible situation is this. It's contagious. When you go, let's go. When you go, trusting that maybe, just maybe, God will help and you show yourself, even to those who might be your enemy. Listen, it becomes contagious. It's contagious. I mean, you ever... You ever meet somebody who their fervor and their passion for Christ, for life with Jesus, for discipleship, it's just so palpable and tangible that you just, you say, I want that. I want some more of that. It's contagious. See, Saul mistakenly thought that they were limited by their lack of weapons. Two swords, are you kidding me? Stay in the cave but God had all the swords he needed. They were just in the hands of the Philistines. Do you see that? He turns the Philistines' swords against 
themselves. See, Jonathan's faith is contagious. Not only that, Saul thought that they were limited to 600. He thought 600 up against 30,000, really? Like, this is inequitable. This does not make sense. But did you see this? That there were Hebrews who had joined the Philistines, like they had betrayed their own people and joined the enemy. And what's more, there were more Hebrew soldiers, maybe part of the 3,000 or something, who had hid in the hills of Ephraim. And they were even more cowardly than Saul and the boys in the cave. But when they hear what Jonathan was doing, they come running to join the fight. Who would have ever imagined that God had actually placed the very army that Saul needed behind enemy lines by allowing them to cave to their own fears, to join the enemy or to hide out in the hills, only to turn them in the last minute so that the victory would be the Lord's? (laughs) Who would have ever thought this? See, I think in our churches today, there are people right now who are apathetic, who are afraid to live life, the life that Christ has for them. They're just drowning in mediocrity. But when you begin to live your life by faith, you will be an inspiration for them to do the same. This is how it works. And there are even people I would wager today who have walked away from their faith who've said, I don't trust God anymore. I don't trust Christians anymore. I certainly don't trust the church anymore. But the moment they see you, let's go. Let's go show ourselves. Maybe God will help. Let's go. That's going to be the contagion that draws them back to God. They only need to be shown that the impossible situation is possible. They only need to believe that with man, it truly is impossible, but with God, it's all things are possible. It's contagious, y'all. Two dudes, one sword, a little bit of faith. And the text says that the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan didn't save Israel. The Lord did. Now, Fathom, I want to apply this to us because, because we too have a bit of an impossible situation. <laughs> Okay, there's this impossible situation for us. And, and, and let me explain this. Our church, uh, since the start of COVID, so since March of 2020, has just about doubled in size. We were about 150 before COVID, and we're about 300 now. And listen, that's not big. We're not a big church. I've worked in much bigger churches. You've probably been at much bigger churches. We're more like two dudes with a sword than we are a big church. Let's just be real. I mean, look around you. Ain't nobody packing that much, all right? So we're not a big church, but I did the research this week. There are about 50,000 people in Littleton. There are almost 100,000 people in Highlands Ranch. And there are 110,000 people who live in Centennial proper. And Fathom is located almost directly where these three cities meet. Littleton, Highlands Ranch, and Centennial. And the demographic research shows that almost 70%, I think it's like 68.9% or something, 70% of the quarter million people who live in the southwest side of town of Denver 
would check no religious affiliation on their census data. They, they checked none. 70% of us are none. Not like nuns, right? But like none. No religious affiliation. And this is partly why I had Silvino read to us in Spanish this morning. I wanted you to hear that God's word isn't just for you. It isn't just for your language. It isn't just for people who look like you, who vote like you, who hang out like you, who spend their money like you. Actually, lest we get too comfortable in our little cave drinking our pomegranate smoothies, the Lord has a mission for us. The Lord has a mission. Here's what Jesus said in his words in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, anybody want to guess what all nations in the Greek means, literally? All. Yeah. All nations, or every nation. It's all the same. Go to all of them. All of them. Every single one. Even the ones who don't speak your language. Go to all of them. Listen, y'all. That's an impossible situation. 250,000 people to our 300, and I'm just talking Southwest Denver. I ain't talking to the ends of the earth yet. 7.8 billion people on this planet. Go to all of them. Not just us, every church. Go to all of them. This is impossible. But here's what I want to just call each one of us, every single follower of Christ to this morning. I want us to be Jonathan's. I want us to be Jonathan's, not Saul's. I want us to get out of the cave. I want us to get out of comfort. I want us to get out of hiding. I want us to get into the fight. Let's take these points. Let's go. Let's go. You know, you, you live where you live, and you work where you work, and you play where you play on purpose, right? God's placed you there. He's ordained for you to be there. So do something. Do something. Um, I've told you this before. My house is on a cul-de-sac. There are 14 houses on my cul-de-sac. And of those 14, there are three who are professing Christians. That includes us. This is 11 homes on my block of nuns. And I would imagine that where you live or work or play, it's very similar in ratio. God has strategically placed you where you are right now. And I would just encourage you, I dare you to take up the mantra, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Let's go. And you can do that because maybe God will help. Maybe he'll help. There's no safety guaranteed here, right? You do realize that Christianity isn't gaining popularity, right? Are you familiar with this? Have you watched or read the news lately? In our culture, the things that we believe that used to make us weird have now made us a threat. 
lest we try to make Jesus cool enough to attract people. Like, he ain't cool. That's a, that's a dumb methodology. Faith doesn't promise safe. Faith promises to make you dangerous. And I think the world's just starting to catch a whiff of that. It may be that the Lord will work for us. But you gotta show yourself. You gotta mount up against the overwhelming odds. Listen, even when things seem like they are against us, the call is to persevere. Hear me, we were made for this. The church, the church of Jesus Christ was made for this. Roman Empire, they were feeding us to lions. And I don't remember who won out in the end, but I'll tell you this, I ain't made a Roman in a while. That empire fell, the church remains. The church was made for this, y'all. It was made for this. We aren't going to slink in the shadows and, and plan some sort of covert strike. That's not how this works. Let's let the Philistines see us, y'all. Let's show ourselves to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. You're Christian. Let that shine. Your faith is personal, but it is not meant to be private. I just want to encourage you, man. You can invite people into this stuff. Invite people into your lives. Invite people into your homes. Invite people to your church. We'll put more chairs out. As our church continues to grow, the elders were started to talk about moving into like a permanent building and all. And like we will talk about those things as we move forward in coming years. But I just want to invite you in on this thing. Like, let's get in on this. Like, I want to witness God multiply the swords. I want to witness God motivate those who are hiding outside the walls of the church to join because of what we're doing. I want to witness God moving the very ground to shake. I don't know what that looks like, but that's a divine hand of help doing something that we could never do on our own. So back to verse 7. Who's with us in this? Like the armor bearer. No name. He will always be remembered as Jonathan's number two, but he says, I'm with you, man. Heart and soul. I'm in this with you. We need this. We need to be for each other, with each other, heart and soul, if this will ever work. And I think we should take out our 20 and see what the Lord does. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's go. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. What a, what a cool passage. What a story. What a de depiction of faith in action. Father, thank you for your servant, Jonathan, for his, his model. Thank you for the, the, the armor bearer who we don't know his name, and yet we see his faith in his friend and his faith in his God. Lord, would you raise up for yourself a people who believe you, who believe when you say there's nothing that's impossible for God. 
We quote that, but that's Jesus talking in the context of the question, well, then who can be saved? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So God, get us out of our caves. Each one of us has things where we're just prone to comfort, prone to safety, prone to fear, prone to just drinking a a smoothie, keeping it safe. Invite us, Holy Spirit, into being dangerous for you. Use us, ring us out for your kingdom's sake. Multiply the swords, multiply the people. Lord, you are the one who receives glory for this. It's the Lord who delivered Israel that day, and it's the Lord who will take on any impossible situation like we face. We make ourselves available to you, Father. Embolden us, give us courage. So we love you, Father. Thank you for this this story. I pray it motivates us. I pray it encourages us. I pray that we show ourselves and get moving. I pray we do something with this life. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.